Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Scott Morey, who serves as Vice President for University Advancement at Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Brent. Good to be here. Well, we had the opportunity to connect in person at the Case Summit just over a month ago in Chicago. And so not typical for me to get some in real life uh, podcast prep, given that this thing was started basically five minutes before a pandemic. So that felt pretty good. And it was good to see you. You as well. Uh, that being said, uh, we're going to cover ground that we did not cover in our uh, prep. And one of my favorite questions for my guest has really just been to learn a little bit more about your own higher education journey. So why don't you take me back to junior year at Rutgers Prep? Who was that guy? What was he into? And what led him to George Washington University? Oh, well, you know, um, I was the uh, first um, in my own immediate family, my, first of my siblings to go to college. And so my parents and I looked at a lot of places as we were trying to figure out where to go. And uh, GW was the first place where I, when I stepped on the campus, I felt like I was meant to be there. Um, there was something about the energy of it, the people that were there, the proximity to the White House and kind of all these things you grew up reading about as a kid. Uh, there was just something about the place that felt really magical for me. And uh, I remember we walked out of the visitor center on the tour and my mom kind of got like a stupid look on her face. And I'm like, what? And she's like, this is where you're supposed to be. Uh, and we both kind of had that feeling about the place and turned out to be right. I stayed there for undergrad and for law school. So I uh, I grew up in Iowa, which people who listen to the podcast are tired of hearing about. But um, one of my, I, I really did not travel very much until I went to college, but I did have the opportunity to do a leadership trip to Washington, D.C. my junior year of high school, which was basically my first time ever on the East Coast. Um, and there is something just truly magical about that first time in Washington, D.C., especially you know, at, at, I don't know, that life stage where we were learning about civics and we were, you know, sort of doing social studies and history and all of those things. It, it really is an amazing place that, you know, now having had the opportunity to spend so much time there, as I know you have as well, it's a little sad how how quick it fades and how quick it just becomes normal. But but that first experience you're describing is so poignant. Well, you know, I graduated from high school in 1992, and that was a big election year between uh, Bush and Clinton. And so I think just the, it, already at that time, you, you already kind of saw that it was going to be, a, if there was a year to be in Washington, it was going to be that year. I guess you could say that every four years. But uh, I think it, it, I grew up doing model Congress and things like that in high school. And so, you know, at that point, we're all still kind of aspiring presidents and senators and cabinet members, if you uh, if you're bent that way. Uh, so it, it really just seemed like a natural place to go to school. And so tell me about the transition there when you think about the first year. I mean, clearly, based on uh, some of what I'm seeing in your background, you you did not sit idle uh, during your time at GW and got pretty engaged with a bunch of activities. But what was your tribe? Yeah, you know, um, I was really involved in student government and um, was actively involved in the student senate. Um, I was a tour guide, uh, so I was very involved at the admissions office. I was on orientation staff, um, kind of one of those just involved people and uh, quick to sign up for everything uh, and made a, a lifelong group of friends um, through through those affiliations that, that are still around today. Um, and, and I think maybe that was kind of the politics itch. I ended up finding it on campus as opposed to Capitol Hill. Um, I Once I kind of realized the conditions that Capitol Hill interns work under, uh, it quickly became an unattractive <laughs> position for me, even though I know so many people who kind of went that route and kind of did the full uh, DC experience. I ended up finding everything I wanted on campus. What are those conditions? I actually don't know too much about it. What was the word on the street? Well, I think in those days, you know, it was long, long it's still, it's still these days, you know, long hours, uh, no pay, grunt work, a uh, lot of uh, reading mail. So instead uh, you decided to be a lawyer? I mean, that sounds kind of similar. Well, I kind of, I didn't decide to be a lawyer. I kind of got advised to go to law school, which is a very different uh, thing, Brent. 
Fair enough. So tell me more about that. At what point did uh, you get the twinkle in your eye around law school? Um, well, actually, you know, I was very fortunate to develop a friendship with Stephen Joel Trachtenberg, who was the 20 year president of GW. How do you do that as a first gen student? Just uh, well, by the way, I want to just be clear. I wasn't first gen going to college. I was just the first. Uh, my parents both went to college. I was just first. They went to Long Island University. Oldest, uh, yeah, yeah. Paid play for your family. Got but, it. Thank but I think um, you know my parents were bo- both immigrated to the United States, so I'm first generation born here. They both went to Long Island University, which you know, with all due respect to LIU, I don't think gave them any context in sort of helping me with my own college search. You know, 20 years later, when I was going to do it. So, where did your parents come from, Scott? Um, my mother immigrated here from Germany um, in 1952, and my father immigrated from Egypt by way of Paris um, in the later 50s. Uh, so, kind of a classic American mutt um, over here. My grandparents are Russian, Polish, Syrian, Yemeni, uh, and all Jewish. So uh, a, a kind of an interesting uh, everything here. Wow. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe next time I need to start before the junior year of high school to get the full picture. <laughs> um, but anyway, I think just because of how involved I was in student government and campus life, and I think it was different times back then. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't like social media. I mean, there wasn't any kind of the barriers, I think, that actually exist now between people. I just was very fortunate to kind of cross paths with, with President Trachtenberg and you know, he took an interest in me. I mean, um, I did, I was involved in an initiative for GW to adopt an honor code or a code of academic integrity uh, that um, that caused me to have to deal with him quite a bit. And for whatever reason, we forged a, a friendship. And at one point he asked me what I was going to do when I graduated from college. And I said, um, I thought I might go and, and work at GW. I thought it would be fun to work there. Maybe I'd go do a degree in education or something. And he kind of quickly sniffed that I didn't really know what I was talking about. And so he said, just please just go to law school uh, because you can basically do anything with a law degree, no matter what. And if it turns out you don't like working at a college, at least you have that. And uh, so I did. I I went to GW Law School, but it wasn't really, frankly, to be candid, out of any conviction to be a lawyer. It was more of the advice that kind of the most utilitarian degree you could kind of get after college uh, was a law degree. Um, and so I went to law school and, uh, yeah, I love law school, had a great experience there and ended up going, getting a clerkship, uh, with a federal judge after that. And then, uh, on September 15th, 2011, uh, 2001 moved uh, to wall street, uh, to work at a law firm. Tell me about the clerkship. I read uh, a bit about John Garrett Penn's bio and honestly, Wish I could have interviewed that guy on the podcast because it sounds uh, like a pretty amazing story. You know, he is one, you know, you know he's passed away since, since I clerked there. Um, you know, he was one of the first African-American jurists kind of uh, put into the federal bench. I think he was appointed, if I recall, by Jimmy Carter yep. um, in the 70s. Um, and, you know, he served as chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. And, you know, frankly, in his time, saw everything. And uh, he was a great uh, mentor and friend. Um, He was very generous with his law clerks in terms of spending time asking you how you saw the the issue that that you were dealing with in chambers, kind of making you walk through your whole argument, not being afraid to poke holes in it and being open to you poking holes in his argument. Um, He was very collaborative that way. And, you know, I, I learned from him that uh, the best work products at some level are team efforts. Even if you have to put your own individual signature on it, as he was the one who had to do, uh, the work product kind of reflected a team effort. And uh, he he was just a very elegant jurist. And you know, he, to this day, I still hear from his wife, and uh, they kind of adopt the whole family of law clerks. You can imagine over you know, 25 years on the bench. He accumulated a fair number of law clerks over that time. And we're, we're still in a, a, an email chat group together. And it's uh, it's kind of very weird, you know, the paths that you cross and the ties that you develop with people. Yeah, it sounds almost like a uh, an alumni group to a yeah. certain regard or a fraternal, you know, 
connection yeah, or, or something. Yeah. All, all of the PhDs a particular professor might have, you know, you kind of form a, a weird little family over time. And, you, you know, you always, you're, you only may be connected by one thing, but that one thing happens to just be very powerful uh, in terms of the experience. And, you know, you're, you're getting it at a very formative stage of your life. Um, and so, you know, there, there's definitely impressions I still have of him, you know, and 20, almost 25 years later. I do wonder, and I did not expect to go there, but we meander sometime. In the show. And um, when you think about like that affinity that you feel, right, the memories you just shared, and I'm sure a bunch that you won't share that you're thinking of right now. And you, you yeah. know, that, that family and that connection it wasn't about the district court. It was about John Garrett Penn and oh, that yeah. sort of individual. And it does make me wonder when you think about how we stay in touch with alumni and friends that so often it's about, uh, you know, Brown or Brown football or the international relations program which in the end are just brands that represent actual human to human relationships. And so I think about like Barrett Hazeltine being this iconic professor at Brown University. If I got communication from Barrett Hazeltine instead of Brown University, it would be such a game changer. And instead, what do we do now today? We actually, he probably has 10,000 Facebook friends would be my guess. And uh, I am going to shoot him a note after this because I owe him a note on something. But but you do wonder kind of, are we missing something about like that human to human connection in a more scalable way, which certainly applies to your memory of John Garrett Penn? You, ju you just kind of touched said the key word, which is scalable, because, you know, at the end of the day, people build relationships with people. You know, you, you don't build relationships with a building. You, you don't build relationships with a mascot. You, you may have fond memories of that mascot, but it's almost always while you were enjoying a game with other people. Well, the, yeah, they're emblematic of yeah. the they, they help you remember they help you remember something, but you you know you don't go, I, I I wish I could spend time with the mascot. So, you know, but the scalability, I think, is a really interesting question because in order to get, for example, faculty to document who they might have affinity with, let alone do something to take advantage of that affinity requires a lot of people power. Um, you know, these things don't happen accidentally. And I think, I think the scalability of personal relationships in this regard, in our context here is, is a difficult one um, because it really does require a lot of labor to kind of take full advantage of it. And of course, some people, some vice presidents, some faculty members, some football coaches are better at it than others. Um, and how you kind of support different people. And some people are willing to do it and some people, you couldn't make them do it with a gun to their head. So, you know, it's, uh, I do think though, you're right. I mean, people connect with people and uh, the more we can ground our efforts in recognizing that, uh, I think the better off we'll be. We'll come back to scalability later and I'm going to try hard not to talk about technology because nobody wants to hear about it on. Uh, I feel like I should get nervous anytime I see you write something down. Oh yeah. Yeah. You should be uh, for sure. Uh, no. Let, so tell me about making the move to Cahill Gordon uh, and Rindel and um, sounds like a, 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 an emotional time to make a move like that. And then a radically different area of uh, focus. And I've worked with firms like that earlier in my career, and it's about as uh, intense as it gets. Well, you know, uh, I had one week off between my clerkship and moving to New York, and that was the week of September 10th, 2001. Um, of course, 9-11 happened, and I don't think we need to kind of go down that, uh, that, that detour uh, here. Um, and then I moved to Manhattan on September 15th. Um, I'm not really sure how it happened, but my mover showed up on time. The cable and the electricity turned on on time. Uh, and I was supposed to start October 1st. And Cahill, of course, is on Wall Street. It's at uh, 80 Pine. And uh, I, I got a phone call saying, we'll pay you, but you're not starting till December 1st because we just we, we can't take you in right now. Of course, the office is 
you, you know, first of all, the whole Wall Street downtown area was devastated and Kale's offices needed to be cleaned like everyone else's. The firm needed to regroup. Um, and of course, you know, it was not a, it was not a fun time to be in New York. Uh, so, you know, you start uh, in, a, in, in a city that's kind of reeling and trying to pick itself back up and figure out how to move forward. I mean, you can remember I can remember everything from, you know, all the anthrax scares that were going on to frankly Rudy Giuliani going on Saturday Night Live to say we need to laugh and we need to start moving forward. Kind of this whole weird confluence of memories about that kind of that period of time, um, which was kind of a, a, an interesting way to start my uh, my time there. Um, I enjoyed being at Cahill though. I had a, I had a good time there. Again, you know, you'll hear a theme. I was very fortunate to pick up one mentor partner um, early. His name was Peter Sloan, who I did most of my work for. Um, and, uh, as a result, had a very good experience there. Um, although when the opportunity to switch careers presented, uh, it was not a good enough experience to keep me, uh, in the law because at the, at the end of the day, Brent, I just didn't have a passion for it. Um, uh, there were plenty of associates who had a passion for litigation or had a passion for corporate deals and they loved it. You could tell they were every day they came in hungry, ready to do it. For me, it was a job and I, I didn't come in every day like, yeah, let's litigate. Um, and so uh, when I had the chance to switch careers, I it wasn't really much of a choice. Yeah, I think leading up to this point, there is almost nothing that you've shared that would lead me to believe that you'd be sitting in the seat that you're sitting in right now. And so uh, clearly, you know, you went down the path, you gave it a go, you had a good mentor, you could tell. And, you know, I, I remember some of the same feelings, like what, there are people out there, you know, maybe people are attracted to the sector uh, in certain part because there's financial upside and that sort of thing. But when you get there, there is truly a difference between the people that absolutely love that work. And the people that maybe hope that they would love it because I could make partners someday. And I know that that has, you Just know, stop at, they hope they'd love it. It is hard. It is hard to fake it when you are in a room of people who truly love that sort of work. Well, and you know what? And it, 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 it is. It, it really is. I mean, I think I was lucky I came into Cahill as a third year associate, not a first year associate because of the clerkship. So I kind of got to skip some of the first year stuff that, that the first year associates get, you know, the, the law firm model. Back I won't then. call it, I won't call it hazing, but it's probably the no, no, it, it's more, it's more like a meat grinder, you know, the, the model back then, because it's changed now, of course, but the model back then was we're going to take a first year class of associates of 50 or 60 first years. And hopefully we end up with five or six eighth years. It's like, who, it's who like half, who three or four of whom will become partner. So the whole thing is meant to ground down the people who either can't do the work, don't love the work, uh, aren't smart enough for the work, don't have the stamina for the work, whatever it is, it, the, the, the old big law firm associate system, and maybe it is to some extent today, but back then it was, we're going to take 50 to end up with five. And it would, uh, yeah, it would make a way less entertaining version of uh, Survivor. It, yeah, drawn out over eight seasons. <laughs> uh, and so at that point, though, given the portfolio of work and the JD and everything, you could have done a bunch of things. Yeah. What was it that brought you to this field of advancement? You had great student leadership. It sounds like strong relationships with the president at the time. But what were the options you considered and what led you to go back to GW, it it was a very it was it was a very lucky circumstance. Um, I was involved as an alumni volunteer. Uh, you know, when I graduated from undergrad, I right away got involved with the GW Alumni Association. When I graduated from law school, I was part of the GW Law Alumni Board as well. And I was a my my fourth year out, so the year I was a fourth year associate. Um, I was elected to GW's board of trustees as a recent alumni trustee. GW had two seats on its board for recent alumni. And they put me on the development and alumni affairs committee when I joined the board. And 
I guess I started complaining a lot about the alumni office, you know, that you're never in New York, only when you want money, you're missing all these people. Just like all classic people. new volunteer exactly, vibe. Exactly, exactly. Know it all volunteer. And one day I was, so I was a fourth year associate again at Cahill. Um, and I got a phone call from Steve Trachtenberg, who's still president. And uh, Mr. President, what can I do for you? And he said, you know, Scott, I'm calling to let you know that this person, the alumni director, has gotten a different job and he'll be leaving at the end of the semester. And um, you're the biggest pain in the ass I've ever had about the alumni office. And I seem to recall your junior year of college, you thought it might be fun to work at GW. So before I start a search, I'm offering you the job. And if you don't take it, I never want to hear another word from you again. And he basically hung up. Um, and I called his assistant, who had kind of been like a surrogate mom in college, Helene. And she basically said, are you coming for commencement? And I said, yes, of course. And she said, well, and those were the days where they paid for travel for the recent alumni trustees. So she said, I'm going to switch your flight. So you could stay a little later. You and Steve will have lunch afterwards. And at this point, he'll expect your answer. And she basically said, I suggest you take the job. And I was 27 at the time. And Cahill had a mandatory retirement age of 67, which means you didn't have to leave the firm, but you couldn't be an active partner at that point. You had to go senior status or of counsel. You just couldn't be a, a voting partner after 67. And I thought, to allude to something you said earlier, Am I coming here for 40 more years? Is, th is this, assuming I make partner, is this it? And I really couldn't wrap my brain around a vision of that as my life and thought, you know, what's the worst that will happen? Um, and so after talking to my own kind of personal board of directors, uh, several friends, um, and including the other recent alumni trustee who was one of my best friends, uh, decided to make the move. And uh, now I'm in my 20th year of advancement work, 20 years later. So take me through the first three months. It's one thing to be a know-it-all volunteer on the outside who shows yeah, up exactly. and for the meetings. And uh, another thing when the rubber hits the road and just, uh, yeah, take me back to that time. You know, it's um, it was a lot of drinking from a fire hose. You know, even though um, I was probably not as... Uh, I was probably a little bit more aggressive in my complaining than I should have been while I was a trustee. The minute I got there, I understood that my complaints were validated and that it really wasn't the staff's fault. It was kind of a lack of a vision of the role of alumni relations in the life of GW. And as a result of major lack of investment in that program, both in terms of um, attention, prestige, and frankly, resources. And one of the greatest gifts um, Steve gave me when I started there was he gave me a special budget um, and he said, I'm going to pick three universities and you pick three universities. And I want you to go meet the person who does your job at that university, go spend a day, shadow them, find out what they do and start learning. And I will say um, my first week on the job, it may have actually been my first day. The first phone call I remember getting was from Kelly Redder who had my job at RIT. And she called to tell me that GW was a member of a group called Pequod and I should plan on coming to their conference. And I was like, I don't even know what Pequod is. Turned out to be one of the most important phone calls I ever got because building that network of people who do your job at other places, I think is a critical uh, component of success, no matter what level you are, you know? That's why I find so much value in, you know, where, where we met in person finally at the case summit, but the ability to go and just meet people who do what you do, who can understand what it means to have a crazy donor, or a crazy president or crazy staff, crazy colleagues. Um, there's very few people who kind of understand what these jobs really are. And, uh, and so that was kind of one of the most important things, but the ability to go network with other people was an important aspect of it. Taking time to, hear what my staff always wanted to do. Like if, if budget and authority were no object, what would you do? And there were some great people on that staff who had never really been given the opportunity to fly. And honestly, I think I came in because I didn't do this job anywhere else. 
Um, I don't think I came in with the, the whole litany of we've never done that before. Or we it never doesn't work that way or you can't. I don't think I was burdened by any of that because I didn't know any better. Um, and so uh, a lot of learning and uh, again, just lucky with the people I ended up surrounded with. A Pequod, because funny, I, I actually, I mean, one of my first mentors in the space was Andy Shandlin, and he uh, was deeply connected with Pequod and um, a lot of the kind of just early, even exploratory conversations I had somehow linked back to, to that community. And, you know, it makes sense that uh, between case and subgroups like Pequod and, you know, conference specific groups that this sector is pretty darn good at building community and bringing people together. Um, but, well, if this uh, profession can't be good at that, then I don't know which profession would be good at that. I mean, this is all about relationship building, whether it's in the fundraising context, the alumni relations context. Um, if we're not good at it, I don't know what, I don't know what other organization should be good at it. And so, uh, yeah, why, why was the Pequod kind of uh, platform, if you will, so important? And, and you could say the same thing about groups like CAAE as well. I mean, it's because at some level, alumni relations officers are not competing with each other. You know, it's not like we're athletic directors going after the same coach or admissions officers going after the same recruit um, or even, you know, development officers going after the same corporate or foundation dollars. You know, at, at alumni relations, I'm not really competing with anyone for my own. I'm only competing against myself. Uh, for the effectiveness of alumni relations. And I think because of that, um, people who have the executive director or AVP job, the top alumni relations job, are just are, are generally very forthcoming. Uh, they're willing to share experiences. They're willing to share ideas. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these conferences turn out to be extended group therapy sessions uh, that are really important um, because uh, whatever I remember in Pequod, whatever question anyone would throw up on the listserv, at least two people had dealt with something similar at their campus and would say either, here's my experience or pick up the phone and call me and I'll tell you what I don't want to put in writing. And, you know, th those relationships are critical in jobs like this. And maybe well, they are in other professions as well, but, you know, I didn't, I, have that, I didn't have that experience as a lawyer. I didn't, you know, I didn't, look to network with other associates at other law firms. Look, every different. Every industry has its version of the industry association and the conference, et cetera. Yeah. But there is truly no industry I have ever come across that is even close to as tightly connected. And, you know, we will say things like this is a tight knit sector. It, it, it so understates how connected this is. I mean, I, frankly, our I whole agree. podcast, it has basically been a tag year it. You know, I, who else did we interview? Who haven't we interviewed? Everybody knows everybody. And uh, and it really does make it special. The flip side being there is risk. Everyone knows everyone. Everybody knows everyone. Reputation, you know, certainly matters. And there is, you know, maybe risk associated anytime that you're in what might be described as an echo chamber. You even shared, right, coming in from the outside meant that you didn't maybe have the biases or preconceptions that others have. Um, and so that is probably one of the, the challenges in, in a sector that is so tight knit. How do we make sure we are cross pollinating with, um, you know, people and, and ideas that come outside, which obviously by way of alumni boards, advisory boards, et cetera, we get some of, but, um, you know, there, there are limits obviously in what a, <laughs> what a volunteer can truly influence, right? That's right. I think that's right. So, uh, when you think about, you know, it's one thing to kind of get the call and and be told that you are taking a role back at your alma mater by a longtime mentor. It's another thing to decide, you know what, I like this career path. I could see myself at 67 or at least 57, you know, in this space. Please not, please not 67. <laughs> please. Uh, fine. You're not trying to make partner uh, in the sector. That's okay. But but to 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 go to your alma mater is one thing. Yeah. To say, you know what? I'm going to move across the country and I'm going to be an advancement professional is another thing. And so I'm just curious, like, at what point in the GW journey did you decide I actually love this work? And then what led you to think, but maybe I should try it somewhere else? 
So as usual, these decision points are usually beyond your control. Um, and, and so for me, what happened, well, first of all, I had a great experience at GW. Um, I was running the Alumni Association over the four years I was there. I picked up the annual fund, leadership annual giving. My role kind of grew beyond just running the alumni office into really being part of the advancement division overall um, and having a, a, a connections with lots of parts of the university, whether it was student affairs or the career center. I mean, just really kind of building connections across the campus. And at the in my fourth year working there, Steve re- announced his retirement. And um, and I thought, okay, that's that's interesting. I wonder what that means for me. Um, and literally two months later, USC called. I or I got a phone call from a headhunter, um, Betsy Berkemer. And uh, the call was essentially, you know, USC is is looking for a new head of its alumni association. Um, your name's come up a couple times. Would you be willing to talk? And again, he had just announced his retirement. And the the question I asked myself, Brent, was exactly the one you posed, which is, am I good at this profession or am I good at working at GW? And because if you're a GW utility player, you go work anywhere in the university. It's really because you know the university backwards and forwards. You have the relationships, at least at that moment in time. And so are you a GW utility player or are you an advancement profession? And I decided that I thought I was more an advancement professional, that I wanted to be more of an advancement professional than a GW utility player. Um, and so I threw my hat into the search um, and, you know, uh, ultimately ended up being successful um, in that search process. And so uh, Steve's last day at GW was my last day at GW. Um, and uh, then I went to the University of Southern California. And what was the actual job that was posted that they were searching for? Uh, it was associate vice president for alumni relations was the, was the, if I recall, was the job that was posted. And we do not talk enough about the importance of search firms and how much talent movement really is driven by search firms. Mm. As a leader, I'm not You're sure. You're leading how... me into dangerous waters. I know. Man. So I'm I'm trying to pose this in a way that is um, that you won't regret, but or that you won't regret, <laughs> or that I won't regret. No regret, regret-free zone. But um, how do you think about the role of search firms, both as a leader who is trying to attract talent in a competitive environment, but also thinking about your career as a professional? Uh, if they hadn't reached out to you that day, there's a good chance that we could still be talking, but we wouldn't be talking about an eight plus year run at the University of Southern California. You know, I mean, I think I think like all things, they have they bring positives and then maybe they bring not so positives. I mean, for me, when I got to Carnegie Mellon, I had to do a lot of hiring my first 18 months at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and I won't get ahead of the story. I think you're going to want to unfold over the rest of this. So I won't, I'll just say, I could not have built the team that I built at Carnegie Mellon without a search firm. And the search firm we used was Aspen Leadership Group. Um, And we literally would not be where we are were it not for the way they approached my situation. Um, On the other hand, there, sometimes I'm curious about kind of the rationale about who gets called for what. Um, because you, I get, I get called quite a bit today and I was recently contacted by a search firm. I thought they were calling me about university a turned out to be about university B. And I was like, how did you decide to call me about university B, but then not mention university a you're doing both searches. University a and B are looking for the exact same candidate at, at the entry at the basic surface level, how do you decide who gets called for A and B? And there's no, to me, it sometimes it feels like there's no rhyme or reason to kind of who gets called um, for what. And so I think the search firms that are willing to kind of do their research and kind of look beyond who's in their stable inventory, um, I think tend bring a lot of value and I could see how they could bring a lot of value. 
you could also understand at some level, you know, people are just shopping the same list around kind of over and over again. And so it's a, it's, sometimes I, I have trouble kind of understanding it as much as I acknowledge they actually play a, a pretty critical role. Thank you for going down that treacherous path with me. Uh, now, USC, right? I mean, you basically at this point had lived you'll, your you'll, you'll promise to hire me if I never get called again. <laughs> you, you had lived your life, uh, Rutgers prep, down to D.C., up to New York and back. Mm-hmm. Southern California, very different. And at a time of incredible growth for yeah. USC. Absolutely. How do you go and just frankly fit in and learn about the basics of what makes USC USC? You knew GW cold at that point. Uh, and what advice might you have to others that are considering such a big change where both geographically, culturally, history, focus, it is so different? Well, you know, I mean, I think my experience at USC is a pretty good example of that because I think when they started out with their search, I, I don't think I was what they were looking for in their head. Um, I, you know, I was from the East Coast. Uh, I was young. I think I was 31 or 32 when I moved there. Um, 30, 32? Somewhere in the early 30s when I moved there. Um, I GW is not a big football place. Uh, obviously, that's a big USC is a big football program. There was a whole bunch of this kid is not what we're looking for that I think ultimately turned out to be maybe this is exactly who we're looking for. And I credit actually Betsy Berkemer, the headhunter, and I've heard this both from her and the woman who hired me, that at some point Betsy kind of said to them, maybe you shouldn't be looking for exactly what you think you're looking for. Maybe that's why you're looking right now. <laughs> Um, and, and when I got there, a piece of advice that I got at some point, I, I, I don't remember who it was from. It was about, you know, don't try too hard to fit in, M make them try to fit around you. And I think it requires some level of self-confidence and self-awareness to be able to go into a community like that and say, I'm not going to change you hired me the way you knew who I was when you hired me. So I'm not going to come in here and try to change myself to fit what I think you want when you already said what you wanted by hiring me. So I'm going to go in and be myself and hope that it all works out. And that would be the advice I'd give to anybody entering a community that's new, whether it's whatever job level it is. I mean, you want to learn the customs and the traditions. You want to know the people. You want to know the politics. You, you, you need to be knowledgeable about the community so you can do your job. But you shouldn't go in thinking, wow, now that they've accepted me, I now need to change who I fundamentally am to meet some notion of what I think they're looking for. And at some level, it's, this is just a variation of, you know, you're, you're enough. Like, you were hired. You're enough. Um, and go and be yourself. And it's okay when yourself and them have some friction and you got to figure out, all right, how, how do we coexist? Um, that's all good. All that stuff can be productive. Um, and that's kind of how I approached USC. I, I went in thinking they had their choice of a lot of different people. Um, and they ended up choosing me. For, for better or for worse, they chose me. It has to be somewhat overwhelming in a role like that to take uh, to join uh, an institution of that scale where you don't have those historical connections i'll tell you the 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 summer or the the month before i started well first of all i had like a very extensive search process with them i think i i i think i was um i think i went out there three times i think i met upwards of 50 different people over the course of this interview process um, including like a panel of former presidents of the Alumni Association, which I, I still remember very vividly to this day. But I remember one um, weekend, they brought me out for so I could look for an apartment. And the woman who hired me, her name was Martha Harris, she decided to host a little cocktail party for me um, at the Alumni House so the volunteer leadership could get to, could meet me before I started. 
And at USC, I mean, not only did I have an alumni board, there's something like 50, 60 regional clubs, 13 women's organizations, um, black group, Asian American group, Latino group, gay group, Jewish, I mean, whatever affiliation you could think of, there was a group for it. There were all the athletics booster societies that weren't quite under the alumni association, but were definitely related. Um, there, so I remember going and just being like, wow, like I, I, there's no way I'm remembering anyone's names, first of all, but there, there was a history book of the university that had just been published. And so they gave me a copy of it and all the alumni leaders were given a chance to sign it before they presented this book to me. And there was a woman, her name was Darlene Reed. And if anyone from USC at that time watches this, they're going to go, wow, I can't believe he's pulling that name out. She was a longtime volunteer. She'd been there forever. And she wrote, Scott, we're counting on you, Darlene. And that's how seriously they took the job and the, the, the alumni cult, the Trojan family. Um, it's real. <laughs> the Trojan kind of mafia, that alumni mentality is very real. And at some level, I chose to, the, believe me, I'm not saying it was perfect every day I was there. But by and large, I chose to kind of just find comfort and strength in that versus being intimidated by it. Right. Like, I, you, imagine, I mean, I think in any leadership role, uh, people tend a lot of time, spend a lot of time thinking about what should I do? But I yeah. feel like one of the things you also need to focus on is what should I not do? And how do I be intentional about what I'm not going to do? And I would think in a role like that, at a place like that, coming in, you could have death by a thousand relationships where you just feel like you need to get to know everyone. That could be a full-time job for eight years and you would never know everyone. That's right. And you also wouldn't have gotten anything done. And so it's like, how do you think about focus when you are inherently in a role like that, that is so broad? And frankly, everybody probably wants to know you and kind of wants to think that you know every professor and every team and everything. Yeah. How do you just sort of create some guardrails and focus? Well, I mean, at, at some level, when you go in, you do have to take in a, a lot of information, uh, at least at the beginning. You need some place to start. And for me, I always want to start with, frankly, what the person who signs my paycheck expects. So at the end of the day, whether it's the president I work for now at Carnegie Mellon, the senior vice president who hired me at USC, I work really hard to develop an understanding with them about what their own expectations are for success. Because at the end of the day, if my boss doesn't think I'm doing the job she hired me to do, it doesn't matter how many volunteers like me at the end of the day. And so I, I really try to develop a North Star around the expectations that the person who hired me on behalf of the institution has. And I think in an alumni job, it can be easy to get pulled off of that because of all the input you're getting from volunteers. There's no job quite like the alumni, the head of alumni relations. When you're the head of advancement, there's a lot of filters in place between kind of the, the, the broad mass and who gets to you, frankly. But when you're in the alumni relations job, your job is to be the filter of that broad mass. And so there is just a lot, as you said, a lot of inbound fire. And so at, at some level, you learn how to politely listen and move on. You learn how to figure out who are the reliable people that you want to include in your kitchen cabinet or your, your board of direct, your personal board of directors. Um, you know, at USC, I had a group of volunteers. I knew like these were like the seven or eight people I was going to call to gut check stuff with. It wasn't going to be all the presidents of all the organizations. There were seven or eight people who I knew I could just gut check with. And the decisions were mine. I had to own them. And I took a lot of crap in my time at USC for decisions I made. Um, but I, I, I kind of had my center around, uh, around what guidance I was going to take. Can I but, ask a question on that note, Scott? Because part of me then feels like, the skeptic in me feels like, maybe there should just be seven or eight people on the board and it should be those people. I mean, I think that is one of the, the issues of scaling these boards and advisory. And it's almost like we're inviting this issue of, I, I want to engage you and ask your opinion, but end of the day, I'm gonna 
have a couple of people that I really need to turn to and I got to own it. And it does seem like sometimes we go through a lot of motions around engagement and advisory and boards. And when push comes to shove, it just doesn't matter. Well, and that's why, you know, there there is kind of a bit of a Goldilocks problem with these boards, right? Because seven or eight people to me is the perfect size if all I want is to bounce my ideas off of a group of people I trust and get their feedback. Seven or eight is not the right size if I need people to go out and evangelize with other people what it is we're trying to do. And so at, at some level, I actually, um, I grew the, G, the excuse me, the USC Alumni Association Board of Governors. Um, you know, USC has 22 colleges. They used to kind of rotate colleges that could have representation. We just let everyone have a rep. Because the, we, we, because the goal was I wanted my message to get carried back to other places by members of the board. And so the board was actually not charged with telling me how to run the alumni program. They were charged with helping develop the message about what we were doing and carrying it back. And so it, it depends on what you want to use your board for. You're right, you cannot make decisions with a 50-person board, which is why a lot of people have like an executive committee model where there is actually a designated group that's actually making the decisions. Um, and those are often not the same people that are informally advising you. But I think you, in an organization like USC, like Brown, you, you need a slightly larger group of people to help you carry the message out to different pockets of alumni to help you. I, I had board members who helped me with deans, who helped me with athletic directors, who helped me with coaches, uh, because my, their relationships, I could leverage their relationships where I didn't have them. Um, and so it requires a lot of time and, you know, elbow grease to work a board. But if you, I think if you do it right, boards can actually be, can pay, can, can pay off, but you have to know why you have them, like what they're for. And you have to manage expectations. If, if, if a board comes in thinking because you let them think, or because you told them, you really wanted their advice in figuring out the whole program. And then it turns out you don't. It doesn't take them very long to figure that out. That's actually on you because you didn't manage their expectations properly. And so if you're clear about what you want, then they can choose. Do I want to be part of that or not? Do I want to be part of Scott's board or do I care about the fact that I'm basically volunteering to work for Scott? Do, if they're okay with that, then that's a great asset to me. Well said. And uh, you've got a lot of experience thinking through this. And a, a lot of mistakes helped me form that experience. Oh, so. yeah. Well, well, I, I want to conclude here on USC and make sure we have time for the CMU experience. But you were there at a really transformational time um, while the largest at the time uh, capital campaign in history had been announced in the education sector. And I read a, a quote about that effort Um that said in six and a half years, as much money was raised for USC as in the previous six and a half decades combined, which is truly remarkable. Um, and so I guess just reflections on operating at that level. And frankly, what was your personal favorite experience, most memorable experience during your time at USC? Um, wow, that's a big question, Brent. I, I don't know that I have kind of the a most memorable experience because when I think about my time at USC, I immediately think of people. And there's 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 several people who just prominently play in my head, whether it was being at alumni awards, being at the Rose Bowl, being at you know different board meetings, at our first women's conference, a, a whole host of experiences frankly, kind of blend together in a very weird way, where what I see are people. Um, I, I think being part of the Trojan family for the eight years that I worked there, you know, it was an incredible privilege. And uh, the relationships I built there, some of which sustained now eight years after having left. Um, but I, I was very fortunate to both have the experience of running the Alumni Association, and then becoming campaign director for the campaign uh, you were just talking about. And I think one of the things that I credit USC with for fundraising at that time was a very clear understanding of where the university wanted to go. Um, and it wasn't just the president, it was the provost, it was the deans, um, it was the trustees, had a sense the university had, had a role to play. Um, and 
that philanthropy was critical to the university being able to achieve that. USC was not embarrassed to talk about its fundraising. Um, it wasn't embarrassed to honor its donors. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of that fueled the success of the campaign. Now, whether, whether some of that fueled some of the trouble USC has gotten into over the past couple of years, you know, I think is beyond the scope of this proceeding. But, um, but at the time anyway, it really was the ability of the leadership and the key donors to really come together and say, we're going to achieve something here. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond the scope and also well covered in prior episodes. So we'll just leave that be. And, um, you know, that being said, there aren't a lot of folks who probably started in the Pequod circuit and then ultimately took on a campaign director title, which probably was a bit of a bridge to the current role that you're in. And so, no, no, it was the bridge. It was the the bridge. bridge. And so tell me about that. And you probably had a bunch of, you know, friends from that circuit asking, you know, is that kind of like going to the dark side in a, in a certain regard? And uh, yeah, just what the, first of all, I've I've never believed that development was the dark side. Like it's never just been, I didn't say you did, but I'm just saying somebody out there might think that, you know, um, I, I always believe that alumni relations is a business function, like anything, like like the admissions office, the registrar, it is a business function. The universities, colleges, private high schools, whatever, they do alumni relations to achieve something, whether it's recruiting, advocacy, fundraising, whatever it is, there are business objectives for why alumni relations, it is not just to try to keep every person ever graduated from your place happy. That's not the business objective. And I understood that very early. And so I was perfectly happy for my alumni relations programs to complement, benefit, support, be benefited by, be supported by development. Um, I have no problem with big donors winning alumni awards. I have no problem with big donors being invited to speak. Um, Who else would you invite but the people that invest in you? And so... um, I remember, though, at the end of my fifth year at USC, which was the first year of the campaign, um, at my annual review, um, the senior VP who I was working for, um, we had my annual review. And, you know, of course, great year. Awesome. Hope you're well. You know, here's your letter for next year. Anything on your mind? And I said to him, I just want you to know I'm starting to get bored. I have four years at GW, five years here. I feel like I've got a lot of this down now. I've built up a great team. Some of this is on autopilot at this point. And I'm I'm about a year to two years away from getting bored, like bo- really bored. And I, I'm telling you this now because I hope when we have my next annual review, we'll have figured out some morphing of my role to kind of give me some more juice. And his name is Al Cecchio, who's the senior VP of University Advancement at the time. And he actually said, most people don't tell me that until they're resigning. So thank you. Three months later, he and the president asked me to become campaign director. And I think because I put out there that I didn't have a specific role in mind, but I put out there, I, I need a little different action. I need something to kind of keep me engaged. And in a weird way, um, you know, again, with 22 colleges, there were 22 chief advancement officers he could have picked from. There was a slew of people who probably wondered how did the alumni person become the campaign director on the fundraising side, forget the alumni relations side. But I think there were a lot of inherent skills that transferred, which is basically the organization of a lot of people to try to get a common thing done. Um, That's something alumni relations people do very, very well. And so... Burkheimer reached back out about Carnegie Mellon or what, what was that, that no, next step? Um, I got, um, I got a phone call uh, from Manny Berger at Whit Kiefer um, telling me about the Carnegie Mellon role. And then, you know, it was again, the classic line, your name's come up a couple times, but the president um, of Carnegie Mellon is wondering if you'd be interested in flying out to meet him. And uh, I had done three years as the campaign director, eight years at USC, and Al wasn't going anywhere. So, um, you know, Manny, Manny Berger called me uh, to let me know about this opportunity and, and that uh, the president wanted to know if I'd be willing to come out and meet. 
president was meeting a few people. He didn't want to put people through the whole search process if he didn't feel there was a connection. Um, and so I went out and um, I had never been to Pittsburgh before. Um, I really didn't know much about Carnegie Mellon, uh, except that it had this kind of brand around technology and drama um, that was highly ranked. Uh, it was private. Um, and it was closer to my family in New Jersey than Los Angeles was. Uh, and ended up coming out here and, and really kind of falling in love with Carnegie Mellon. Um, it's a very unique community. Um, it, it's a little quirky. Um, it has this AI brain and this drama brain and it all kind of coexists very peacefully and naturally together and uh, end up really connecting with the place. Tell me, Scott, about what you're most excited about. It's been an incredible period of growth at Carnegie Mellon. And I think you're just one of those institutions that's at the intersection of so many of the technology waves that we're all living through right now, but but sort of also deeply connected to Pittsburgh and frankly, helping make Pittsburgh become a bit of a magnet, you know, in the same way that Silicon Valley has been historically. I, I think that's right. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we're one of the top computer science places in the world and we're the official partner of the Tony Awards, like all at the same time. And I think that kind of dichotomy and how it exists so naturally up against the story of Pittsburgh is, is what makes Carnegie Mellon such an exciting place. Um, you know, I'm starting my eighth year here at CMU now, and we've built an incredible organization. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to kind of end this without saying a little bit about my time at Carnegie Mellon um, in that uh, when I started here, you know, we had a higher uh, four out of six direct reports, five out of seven chief advancement officers. Um, there were about 40 vacancies in a division of 180 people. Uh, so there was a lot of rebuilding to do, and there was a real commitment from the president and the provost and the deans that we were going to do this together. Uh, and so we hired uh, chief advancement officers that have been, frankly, the linchpin of, I think, what our success has been. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of in my tenure at Carnegie Mellon is the relationship with the deans. Uh, I think I shared with you, um, we've built what I call a federal model. I, I don't like the word central versus decentralized, those words are generally forbidden in my presence. Um, but I, I say we've built a federal model where everyone's got a role to play, but we do have one way of doing business. Um, and that's something I'm, I'm as proud of as the actual dollars that we've raised. Um, we announced a $2 billion campaign, and with two years to go, we're, we're at $1.9 billion. Um, and a similar statistic to the one you quote about USC, although at a different scale. I think what we've raised in this campaign is equivalent to what was raised in the last three or four campaigns. So um, been a tremendous period of growth and proof of concept that a place can do it. Um, and uh, it's been a great team effort. It's a good reminder that it might feel like to the outside public, to the world, that Carnegie Mellon's not that different today than it was eight years ago, let's say. And at a macro level, perhaps it isn't, but when you look at what the actual process of team building, setting an ambition, ambitious vision, and then going and executing can do beneath the surface, even if Carnegie Mellon broadly feels maybe kind of the same, there can be a tremendous amount of change and impact generated. Um, well, you and, know, the, and the fundraising is not in service of its own goal, right? I mean, the fundraising is part of an overall effort to move the university forward. And even though it's kind of fundamentally Carnegie Mellon, I think um, the place that it's starting to occupy in popular culture is kind of greater than it's been. I think the university's willingness to tell its story and, and, and be proud of it um, is, is, has increased. You also got to remember Carnegie Mellon is a young university. I mean, Carnegie and Mellon only merged in 67. So, you know, fundamentally, this is like a 55-year-old university that punches above its weight in so many different categories uh, against places that have a lot more money and, frankly, a couple centuries of history on us. Um, and so uh, it's, it's a place I'm really proud to, to be part of right now. I watch um, a fair amount of 
CNBC. And I am curious, it seems like the PR game at Carnegie Mellon has been very strong in recent years. And I'm wondering, is that an underleveraged tactic for universities like yours? Because I bet there are a lot of your alumni that like seeing Carnegie Mellon in the backdrop on these other channels. Is that intentional? Is it just sort of accidental with all of the tech convergence? Um, no, I think I think it's gotten more and more intentional. I mean, just I think last week, I don't know if you saw there was something on you might have seen the metaverse package that was on on a lot of the NBC networks. Um, that you know that was an intentional move. It didn't happen by accident. Um, about a decade ago, they may have been content for that to have happened accidentally. Uh, but I think there's kind of an understanding now, and maybe it's a, a little late to the realization, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. You've got to have some purpose behind it um, and understand that it's okay to be out there telling your story. I mean, it, it do, you could look at the Tony Awards as a classic um, example. The reason why we've invested in that partnership, sure, it it tells a story of a drama, fine. But you know what, Grant, we're never going to a bowl game. So uh, the national exposure we get during a three-hour CBS national telecast, worth its weight in gold, and whether you're a theater kid or not, frankly. And so looking for these opportunities to tell the story and to cut through every other university trying to do it at the same time, right? We're not operating in a vacuum. So looking for those strength points and exploiting them, telling the story around them. I think it's it's negligent to not be doing that at this stage of the game, uh, which is why we've invested a lot in our university communications and marketing division. Uh, we just hired a great new vice president who started uh, last year. Um, and we're really looking to kind of grow the role that function plays on campus. Just like fundraising, it's not mission adjacent. It's actually mission critical that these functions are as good as the university they represent. You know, what's the point in having top programs if they're represented by mediocre fundraising and marketing programs? You know, it, it's worth investing to make these programs as good as the ones they represent. I love that. Great concluding thoughts. Like if we are going to set a standard in uh, AI or machine learning, uh, why not set a standard in advancement too? Yes, I, I, I think that's right. And I think it's integral to the success of where we want, getting successfully getting to where we want to go. As we conclude, I want to just ask you, are you hiring right now? Uh, and if folks want to be in touch, what's the best way to do that, Scott? Um, well, first of all, the, the best way is to LinkedIn. Um, I, uh, I get a lot of LinkedIn through from case conferences. And I just spoke at a conference in June. I'm always willing to connect with people on LinkedIn and hear people's questions. But, you know, Maury at cmu.edu. Um, I'm not sure what we're hiring right now. We always have some positions open now and again uh, in every in every part of the division, you know, because we've we've invested not just in our fundraisers, but in our donor relations, our communications, our annual fund, our research team. All, all parts of our division have gotten investment over this period of time because you need the whole thing to make it work. I mean, you can't just have great fundraisers with no support, no professional services that back them up. Uh, so, you know, we're always looking for good people. Scott, I just want to conclude by giving you an opportunity to share 60 seconds on a recent experience that you've had uh, being a donor. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I'm actually, I'm really proud. I just uh, did my, uh, I just did an endowed scholarship at GW, um, which is something I've been working really hard to be able to do. I'll give credit to my good friend, Donna Arbide, who's the vice president there. She and I have known each other uh, almost as long as I've been in this career. She was the alumni director at Miami when I started at GW and I met her pretty early. So I've known her a long time and, and GW couldn't be in better hands uh, than with her. Um, but, you know, she basically prospected me and I was I was gonna make a gift and she did the old, have you ever thought about what else you could do? It was an, it's the, 225th anniversary, 200th anniversary for GW. Um, and she, she, she baited me, uh, but I was thrilled to be able to do it and, and really glad that she actually inspired me to set my sights a little bit higher. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just gotten my second 
report from the student that has uh, my scholarship there. It's uh, it's really amazing to kind of see it from the donor side. Um, you know, I've been an annual donor to GW ever since I, frankly, I think was a sophomore. Um, but to actually kind of get an impact report as a donor uh, was a little trippy, uh, but but very gratifying. Well, Scott, uh, that is a really great thought to conclude with. And you I've also learned to be very careful with what people say to you because you don't forget anything. Hey, you know, uh, this is all just one big discovery <laughs> call at the end of the day, but uh, I will dutifully log my contact report. Uh, no, in all seriousness, it was just you were clearly uh, you, we talk a lot about asking people for money. Right. And how to engage donors on this uh, podcast. and. I think we forget how common it is for um, us to all be donors. That's um, right. Maybe not that common where you know we're we're yet um, having that kind of experience, if you will. And so it was really cool to just. It was a reminder that sometimes we can feel you know bad about asking for money or guilty, and seeing like how genuinely happy you were yeah. to step up to that level. Of donor was just a reminder that we should not, uh, we should uh, unabashedly, while respectfully, uh, collectively set our sights higher. And just seeing your joy was really um, inspiring. You know, Brent, it's, uh, first of all, I appreciate that. And, uh, you, and you, you observed correctly. I, was, I took a lot of pleasure out, out of being able to do that. You know, it, it's, a, it's a common misperception that this job is about asking for money. Um, I, I, Donna didn't ask me for money. She asked me to think about what I could do for GW. Um, I rarely literally ask people for money. You know, th this job is about finding out what people care about and lining it up with something CMU is good at or wants to be better at. And very often the question that's asked is what can I do to help, not what can you give us? And to me, like that to me is the sweet spot where You've led this conversation. You've built this relationship in a way where they ask you, what, what can I do to help? If it literally gets to me asking for money, um, I think I've done something wrong in how we've curated this conversation. And I think it's a common misperception. I hear all the time from people, I don't think I could ever ask people for money. And these are people who have to ask a, a lot harder tasks of other people than of helping people to make a gift. You know, the reality is if someone accepts an appointment with me, they generally know what I want to talk about. My title gives it away pretty much every time. And so I think it's, it, it's invite people to kind of think a little differently about what the objective is. It, it, it's not just about asking for money. It's about lining people's passions, aspirations up with yours. And that, that to me is the sweet spot of this profession. Beautiful thoughts to conclude with Scott. And here is to rarely asking for money and raising a ton of it in pursuit of all of the missions of the folks that are listening here. And I just want to encourage everybody to take Scott up on the offer, follow him on LinkedIn. Um, uh, you, you can find him easily and uh, just thank you. And I look forward to continuing to get to know you in the coming uh, months and years. And with that, I'm going to conclude today's episode with Scott Morey, Vice President for University Advancement at Carnegie Mellon University. Take care, everybody. 